There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. A brief, if frenetic, introduction to Mr. Archibald Beechcroft, a child of the 20th century, a product of the population explosion, and one of the inheritors of the legacy of progress. Mr. Beechcroft again. This time, act two of his daily battle for survival. And in just a moment, our hero will begin his personal one-man rebellion against the mechanics of his age. And to do so, he will enlist certain aids available only in the Twilight Zone. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I am your host, Jimbo, and joined once again by... 80s E. Good to see everybody. Back in the fifth dimension, remote fifth dimension once again. It's been a while since we've done a remote recording, so hopefully we haven't forgotten everything. Right. Um, before we get started, Eric, let's go ahead and take a moment, since this is our first time recording since our live show, um, just to thank right. everybody that came out. A special thanks to Jackie and the the crew from the Boone County Jail and Distillery for hosting the event. Um, they did a fantastic job. Um, we want to thank everybody that came out and uh, supported us. Um, the place was packed. It was great. Yeah, uh, I think we had close to 30 people. That I thought that was a wonderful turnout. And I couldn't believe, you know, I found out after the fact that there were a couple, well, at least one co-worker of yours that traveled a pretty long distance. I was, like, shocked that they drove all the way. Was it from Kentucky? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I worked with a guy in Kentucky, uh, Jen and uh, Kenny. So Okay, Jen and Kenny, yeah. yeah. Um, not only that, not only that, but there was a couple there that his mom used to be the cook for, and worked there at the jail. Like oh, really? 30 okay. years prior or something like that. I thought that was really cool too. I forgot their names, but they were talking to me on the way out. So it was pretty cool to meet them too. But, uh, we just wanted to say thanks once again for everybody that came out and Jackie and them for doing a, such a fantastic job. And we can't wait to do some more collaborations with you guys in the future. Yeah, we were uh, we were really excited. It was it was uh, pretty nerve wracking there for a while. We were trying to <laughs> Jimbo and I were up late nights trying to figure out how we were going to get get the equipment to all work together. And uh, you know, for uh, a first trial run, I thought we did pretty well, and it, it turned out really really nicely. And uh, got to meet some uh, some people. I I met a. Uh, a lady well i won't go into she had a lot of stories about the jail too i met her out while we were handing out candy with that event on meridian too i couldn't believe the number of people um but stay tuned we're going to have a an episode uh i believe that we're going to talk specifically and kind of uh review the live show we got some interviews that i want to throw in i'm still 
going to gather a couple more interviews, I think. And we got some good stuff cooked up for you, but I don't want to give all the way Jimbo. Uh, uh, Eric, how many how many people do you think that we handed out candy to? How many people do you think oh, was on Meridian? It was extremely even. packed. I have never seen that many people in a long time. I kind of yeah, felt like I, uh, Mr. Beechcraft <laughs> because there was just so many people <laughs> from this episode. Yeah. There was just so many people and so many awesome outfits and, and, and people and pictures being taken and kids and parents. And just everybody was having a good time, man. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I had no idea that there was that it was that big of an event, but uh, it, it worked out perfectly. Hopefully we can uh, snag a few more viewers, uh, maybe. Uh, next time but uh yeah it was great to be a part of it and uh it was a it was a fun night for sure one that uh will be memorable and uh yeah it's a good time well eric since it's been a while since we've uh we were trudging right along on the twilight zone and we kind of hit a roadblock with um yeah a lot of stuff so uh but we're back at it this is a uh, season two episode 27 the mind and the matter um, so coming down to the final few episodes of season two, and then we will have the awesome ending tragedies awards ceremony at the end of season two, which is always fun to look back I on. I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait. I know you can hardly <laughs> wait because it's so fun. Um, I went back and listened to our season one tragedies. It was really good, but this one's going to be a lot of fun because uh, you like a lot that I didn't like, and you didn't like a lot that I did like. So I think it's going to be a fun time when we get to that. But let's go ahead and take away this one, The Mind and the Matter. Alrighty, The Mind and the Matter. This is The Twilight Zone Season 2, Episode number 27. It was directed by Buzz Kulik and written by Rod Serling. It was an adaptation from a, I think it was a 1955 radio broadcast story, but I'll get to that in a minute in my notes. The original air date for this particular episode was May the 12th, 1961. And the production costs, this was a regular Twilight Zone, production costs come in right around where they normally do. If you've been following the podcast at all, we're at $56,970.64. And when we adjust that for inflation, again, that's about a 926% increase. Just to kind of give you a, a feeling of what it would look like in today's dollars, it would look like 584998 and 92 So almost $600,000. Just a few dates of importance for this episode. The dates of rehearsal were March the 28th, excuse me, the 27th and the 28th of 1961. And the actual dates of filming, we've got three dates for filming for this episode. We're looking at March the 29th, the 30th, and the 31st of 1961. And when we talk about May 12th, 1961... We This brings us to our favorite segment of the podcast for May the 12th, the segment we like to call On This Day in History. All right, for May the 12th in TV and film history. And by the way, I'm running out of, I'm almost running out of, I was thinking the other day, what am I going to do when we go on to the, the season three, four, and five? Because <laughs> all the trivia, yeah, for if the same dates come up, like I'm gonna run out. I'm gonna have to come up with some new stuff, but I'm have to figure something out. But for this day in May 12th, in 1960, Elvis Presley appears on the Frank Sinatra television television special. Elvis sings Sinatra's 1957 Cy Coleman hit Witchcraft, and Frank performs Presley's. 1956 classic Love Me Tender. So they swap songs, I guess, on that particular uh, 
episode. I didn't even know Frank Sinatra had a television show, but uh, that doesn't mean anything. I, I don't know a lot of things. So 1963, uh, on May the 12th, Bob Dylan walks out of the Ed Sullivan Show. Now, I have heard of the Ed Sullivan Show. Apparently, he walked out, this is Bob Dylan, he walked out over a dispute about a song choice. And I don't know, but I, I've heard stories that Ed Sullivan ran a pretty tight ship, so maybe it was a dispute with, you know, Ed himself and over a song that uh, Dylan wanted to sing. I don't know the particulars, but apparently he walked out. That was a, a pretty significant thing in TV and film history. Let's uh, skip ahead a few years to 1968. These are all like in 1968, but uh, WSKG TV channel. Uh, this is the PBS channel in Binghamton, North Carolina. Excuse me, not North Carolina. Binghamton, New York begins broadcasting. So that's the hometown. That's why that's significant. That's the hometown of Rod Serling. Uh, 1968, their PBS channel launched uh, on May the 12th. And finally, probably something we're more familiar with, in 1994, on May the 12th, Pulp Fiction, directed by Quentin Tarantino and starring John Travolta, uh, and Uma Thurman and Samuel L. Jackson premieres at the Keynes Film Festival in 1994. So that was kind of uh, John Travolta's reemergence, right? Would you say like that was his kind of his comeback film after he was experienced a lot of popularity in the 70s? He had a kind of a comeback in about 20 years later in the the highly acclaimed film Pulp Fiction. So with that, that will end on this day in TV and film history. Jimbo, I throw it back to you, sir. All right. So let's go ahead and talk about the cast of this uh, episode. Um, honestly, it's really not a lot of cast. There's a lot of extra people in the background, if you will. Um, but there's usually pretty much only about, I'd say, about three main people in this episode. So we'll start right. with uh, the main guy, uh, Archibald Beechcraft. Uh, he played by Shelley Berman. Uh, you may remember him uh, as he in, in some movies, uh, Meet the Fockers, where he played Judge Ira. And he was also in You Don't Mess with the Zohan, where he played Zohan's father. Uh, so um, he even. Really? He, he's been in. Yeah. He's been in movies that recent. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, I, he's dead now, but I'm just saying. Right. I didn't write that down, but uh, yeah. Uh, then you had Jack Greenwich. Uh, he played Henry. Uh, Eric, you might remember him from the great James Dean movie Rebel Without a Cause, where he played Moose in 1955. Okay. Then he had Chet Stratton, uh, who played Rogers. Uh, he was in a little thing, the Matinee Theater in 1955. And then there's a bunch of uncredited, so we'll just name them off in uh, the movie that they have listed here that they worked in or whatever. So it's David Armstrong. He was a worker that was uncredited. He was in the General Electric Theater from 1953. Ken Kane uh, was another worker. He was in Here Comes the Brides in 1968. Robert McCord, uh, he's the elevator operator. Um, he was uncredited, but he's been in several Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, you had Dan White, who was a worker that was uncredited. He was in the Americano in 1955. And you had, yes, Pinocchio Roy Wilson. That is his name, Pinocchio Roy Wilson. What? Yeah. Uh, and he was the photo double. Um Eric, he was in the movie, the great Mel Brooks movie, Blazing Saddles in 1974, where he was a dancer. 
And he was also in Peach Dragon as a dancer. So um, I think that was pretty cool that uh, he, he must have been like a famous dancer or one of those dancers. Um, and then you had the great legendary Rod Serling once again being his self as the narrator and the self-host. And obviously he's famously remembered for all the episodes of The Twilight Zone. So there you have the short cast of this episode. Yeah, very... Yeah, very short cast. Um, that'll become more evident maybe when we start to unpack the episode. And uh, let me give you a, a plot summary here for this episode. The intolerant Archibald Beechcroft is a misanthropic clerk of a central insurance company. And he hates everybody. <laughs> when a colleague gives him a book about the power of the mind, Archibald reads the magic book and decides to wipe out the human race. Boy, that was a gigantic leap for me, too. Like, I know he hates everybody, but, I mean, he goes from, well, getting rid of the landlady to start with, and then he goes from that to, hey, I'll just wipe out the entire well, planet. What's he I always thought he that says, was a... He said, today the landlady, tomorrow the world, and I'm like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I kind of, you know... Um, I, I kind of picture him kind of like you, where you hate crowds and you hate people, you know what I mean, and um, co-workers, whatever. But uh, I, I kind of think he's he reminds me a lot of the Grinch. Who's uh, Christmas oh, okay. around? You know, yeah, I can see that like connection. Yeah. So. Yeah. So he makes that quantum leap from the landlady. I always thought that was interesting from the the, the landlady to the entire world. But uh, let me finish this. Uh, there's one sentence left here. It says, however. He feels lonely and uses his ability to make the entire population of the city his perfect clone. That was a, <laughs> a sort of a interesting turn of events in the episode, discovering how hateful the world would be. So I thought there. Well, we'll get to it at the end uh, when we give our questions and observations segment. But I did think there there was one shining. Maybe one shining little moment in the episode uh, that it taught a, a, an important moral, but uh, beyond that, uh, yeah, the, I didn't think the episode was that great. But let's right, I'm gonna, go ahead and launch I'm gonna, it. I'm going to go throw ahead. you. I'm going to throw you this question right now because I'm sure okay, we'll yeah, answer yeah. it at the end. But are you ready? Okay. How come when he was like, "I'm just lonely," and you know all that? How come since he can make things appear and disappear at the blink of an eye? How come he couldn't have just concentrated and thought of his perfect soulmate to arrive and not bring everybody else back? Just, you know, Ooh, like a okay. wife, uh, a partner? Yeah, that's an interesting way. It could have, uh, a dir an interesting direction that the episode could have taken if uh, they would have written it that way. That, yeah, that's kind of interesting uh, to because think about. Because at the end, he's like, way. I don't, you know, I, when he sees himself, it's like, it's just all him. But if he would have just brought in uh, a lover. Cool, you know, whatever. Right. Then right. he could have made her disappear his, if he didn't like her. I'm just saying. He's know? his better half. Yeah. Right. Right. I just thought that was a that was. I was like, man, you know, you don't have to bring back the entire world. You know. <laughs> yeah. A couple people. So let's go ahead and launch into this bad boy. So the opening uh, scenes, we're introduced to this main character. He's crammed into, I think, like a subway car. I'm going to start the episode yeah. here. We're going to walk through like we normally do and try to hit some high points. It's like the hustle and bustle of an office building, and people are, once they get out of the uh, subway, I think they get jammed into an elevator next. You see, I'm going to assume this is in like a major metropolitan city and like New York or something, and he's got this uh insure he's an insurance what is he like an adjuster maybe 
I, I don't know exactly what well, his title I is. I, well, I, I kind of think he works like in the stock market because if you notice that picture behind him has the Dow or whatever going oh, up. Oh, uh, okay. You know what I mean? But I don't I don't know right. for sure. So shortly after the hustle and bustle scene of the opening scenes, Rod gives his uh, introduction very early. He sets the stage for us and uh, introduces us to Beechcroft. And then the next uh, scene that we come to is the office floor and we're introduced to the character Henry, who immediately <laughs> spills coffee, and he will do that throughout the episode. He spills coffee all over Beechcroft's uh, suit, and you know he's just a cantankerous office employee who he he seems like. If I'm going to read into his character, he has a certain way of doing things, and if anything disrupts, uh, not unlike most people, you know they they have uh, their routines or whatever and when it gets disrupted he gets overly agitated and he's easily agitated um and he responds to um what's the character's name henry he responds he says you clumsy clod after he spills <laughs> the coffee and then uh, you know beechcroft sits down at his desk in disgust and then we go the next scene is like in the men's room all right and he's going to kind of clean up and he there's a which there's a bench in the men's room, but this is a uh, one piece of trivia that's important. This is the same restroom that they they used in a season one episode, Mirror Image. Uh, this is this set is the same uh, bathroom set from Mirror Image. If you remember that episode from season one, Eric, did you happen We're, to notice in the background the? Uh, the old paper towel dispensers, that's just the single yeah. sheet that you pulled right. out. And the old... How unsanitary is that thing, dude? Uh, they're <laughs> pretty you, bad. Have you ever used one of those? Uh, in a dirty truck stop, yeah. If I was like on a long trip and you had to stop oh, yeah. in a small town in a you know crummy uh, gas station, yeah, those were still around. Even as recent as a couple years ago, I, I think I might have used one, but... Uh, in this restroom, we have another meeting of a another person, another cast member, and this is Rogers. Now, I got a question for you. Do you think Rogers, I don't think it actually says, do you think Rogers is like his superior, like the boss, or do you think he's just like another co-worker? Because he's got a lot of advice for Archibald. I, and I, I'm not really sure, but I really like that guy. Um, if you pay attention, especially the way they did this set in the mirrors, you can see mm -hmm. his facial expression, both of them, when they're talking yeah. back and forth and they turn around. I thought he did a really good job, but he's kind of a right. weird guy. He's very health conscious, and he's yeah. got lots of advice uh, Rogers does. He asks Archibald, is he feeling ill? I would characterize uh, Rogers as like a company man through and through. Everybody probably works <laughs> with somebody that... <laughs> they like for me they bleed brown like it's all about the company it's all you know they're always i don't know they, they they're kind of annoying after a while like their whole life sort of revolves around the company but i'm gonna give you a few quotes from rogers he says um why i think that he's you know sort of a brown nosing company man he says this he says keeping yourself fit is not only a personal obligation oh no it's in a larger sense it's part of your responsibility to your job and to the firm that employs you but the powers in the greens beechcroft the powers definitely <laughs> powers in the in greens the <laughs> so he's trying to give him all this dietary you know advice and telling uh, Beechcroft, like, your diet, the reason why you feel so down and slow and sluggish is, you know, you're not eating right. 
And then, you know, after Rogers gives Beechcroft some upbeat dietary health advice, Archibald has a rather stern retort. He says, if you'd really like to know, Mr. Rogers, if you'd really like to know precisely why I'm so dead tired, you ought to try coming to work in the out on the subway at 7.30 every morning, then jamming into an elevator like part of a herd of cattle, then working in that, in that concophonous den that you call an office, always get jostled, always get shoved, and always get pushed around. So he comes back with a quick one, you know, like Beechcroft, he's just fed up with the hustle and bustle and always having to contend with people and trying to work. He's just exhausted. People are exhausting him and he's, you know, it's not his diet. I I just just thought that was funny, you know, and, you know, Rogers is this upbeat company guy. He's, you know, Mr. Positivity and, and Beechcroft is like, dude, like, leave me alone. I've had enough of, you know, everybody. So, uh, Beechcroft then explains his philosophy on the universe and the way he can reach absolute perfection is absolute solitude, fixing the problem by eliminating all of the people. So it's very clear that, uh, Beechcroft has a problem with people. We all experience that at certain times, I think, uh, in different ways. Some people are not as much, you know, they're not as inclined to be put off by people and others maybe a little bit more, but you know, Beechcroft is embodying this person. Like it's everything's sort of coming to a head for him uh, in his life and in his career. So next scene, we're in the cafeteria, right? And Henry, Henry saves Beechcroft a seat at the table. And then here's the 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 centerpiece. Uh, he Henry he Henry. I'm speaking here. To, he hands Beechcroft a book on how to achieve the ultimate power of concentration. So Henry recounts a compelling story of his friend who caused a woman to buy a chartreuse and orange scarf by using his mind by concentrating really hard. So he rolls out this story to Beechcroft. I don't know. Do you? Th- you know, I, I kind of have a warm spot in Hen- for Henry, you know, because he's like this young guy, you know, he's trying to learn the business and maybe Beechcroft is like his mentor and he's trying to impress him and he, he wants to do a good job, but he's just a fumbling, bumbling, clumsy guy. Well, you know? two two things in this scene that that, um, that struck me. One is the lunch they're eating looks like a glorified TV dinner with a little foil <laughs> I noticed that too. And I was like, right. hey, I, I can't remember the last time I had TV dinner, but that now takes I want me back. one. But now I want yeah. one. And I want a TV tray to set it on and watch cartoons on you Saturday. Want, not you want those that, nasty peas and carrots? Yeah. But not only that, but did you see where he put the napkin? Beechcroft no, takes the napkin, and on his suit coat, he puts it down here. He hangs it from like where his suit coat's buttoned up, like like down by his belly. Oh. Instead of up around his neck, okay. he puts it down oh. around his belly. And that just bugged me because I don't ever remember, you know, going out to eat after church and stucking the napkin right down there on my suit coat. It's always up here yeah. or something, you know, by your tie or something. That just yeah. bugged me. I don't know if you caught that, but that was just really infuriating to me. I did catch the TV dinner. Ugh, I used to hate those things as a kid, <laughs> but... Yeah, I'm I'm kind of intrigued now. I might want to try one again just to yeah. see if they're as bad as I remember. I don't know. Sometimes your ch- your tastes change as you get older. Um, 
So again, Henry recounts this story, and that's kind of the centerpiece, and that intrigues Beechcroft. And he thanks Henry for the book, but not before having spilled coffee on him yet again. So Henry spills the coffee again at lunch. So the next scene we come to, he's on the subway going home. Beechcroft is... He's packed in shoulder to shoulder, but he is ferociously reading this book. You know, there are cutaway scenes where he's, it's a page turner for him. I mean, he, he reads it in about, you know, in a night, he's done by the end of dinner time, which that takes us to the next scene. He's in his apartment and the, the montage continues all the way up to the dinner table and he's eating dinner and he's reading the book and everything. And then he comes to a conclusion at the end of reading the book he says to himself, they're right. They're absolutely unequivocally right. Concentration is the most underrated unknown power in the universe. Why a person could a person could move mountains. There's really no limit to what a man could do using the power properly. No limit at all. And so that's his conclusion after reading the book. If he could just concentrate hard enough, he could get rid of people. And he gets his first chance to to try that when the landlady comes to knocking. And she's there to collect the rent, and you just see us, you know, a cutaway scene of her, you know, hand banging against the front of the door, and that goes on for a second. Then her hand just disappears. Right? That's that's Beechcroft wishing her away, and it worked. So he has this newly found, newly discovered power of concentration, <laughs> and then Jimbo, you've already quoted the line. He says, today the landlady, tomorrow the world. Yeah, but, but it's, before, it's really before, corny how be, they close that scene. Yeah, but before that, when he's concentrating, he's like, go away. And he's like, be extinct. <laughs> I was like, wow, <laughs> he's, he's going all out. Yeah. So then we cut away to a commercial break after that corny line to, to end the scene. And then uh, the next scene we come to is in the uh, subway station it's a trip back to work in the morning um beechcroft stands at like the landing on top of the stairs and he you know he concentrates and all the people disappear he and i just kind of went through a litany of the things that he was able to do which i just thought he was able to apparently he was able to do a lot more by concentration than just making people disappear because the train is still operating right he automatically unlocks the turnstile. He causes the subway to move. Uh, the elevator and the office doors automatically open by him just like flicking his hand. He makes the, uh, the makes time stop because it was making yeah, noise the on the clock. clock. Stops. <laughs> he causes an earthquake, an electrical storm. So apparently, his powers of concentration aren't just limited to causing people's extinction here's my question though i think i brought this up later so i'll just do it why would you go to work that's exactly what i was there? getting ready to say number one why if he even if you went to work why would you he puts paper in and starts typing and i'm like yeah he's doing, why are you doing that who am i going to turn it into who's going to fill out my paycheck i go down to the local <laughs> bank and grab me a couple bags of cash but you don't need cash because <laughs> you can just take whatever you want it's just ridiculous yeah. Yeah, that is a kind of a, a big plot hole. Like, I know they have to do it to sort of move the episode along. I don't know. Like, maybe he loved his job, but like, there's no reason. There's no one to insure. They're all gone. Like, right. there's no reason to go to work. To yeah, yeah. That that was kind of a 
Yeah. So uh, he's this office scene here. There, there are some, I guess, cinematography tricks here. Uh, what is one of them where he lays his glasses down on the desk and there's a reflection of himself? He's basically they're trying to illustrate the point of him being there alone with his with his thoughts, and you know he has lots of questions for himself and and it's sort of like his alter ego maybe like oh this isn't as great as you thought it was going to be is it you're right. stuck well, with all of your thoughts and i think i think but i think what his conscience says to him in this part is probably the uh episode in a whole because he he says to himself solitude is one thing but loneliness is another and i think that was right. very telling of this episode yeah that is an important distinction and yeah, that and the moral at the end that we're going to get to, the line that he quotes at the end, are, yeah, the most important things that stick out for sure in the episode. So there are, uh, again, uh, and on the, men- Jimbo mentioned the, the the graph on the wall behind him. His reflection is in that graph, and he's sort of wrestling with himself in this intermediate uh, scenes. Like, what is he going to do? He starts to question those things, what we just brought up, like, hmm, and and... He even asked himself, oh, boredom is starting to set in, huh? And he's like, no, 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 I'm not bored. And he's having this conversation with himself. And then at the end of these scenes, which were probably really high tech a long time ago, but they seem kind of corny to us now, but I'm sure that there were a lot of things that were involved in making that happen. Um, I'm going to go ahead and skip a little bit ahead to the scene where he heads home after a long day all by himself and with his thoughts and he tries to you know he 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 tries the earthquake and he's like oh no i don't want to do that and then the electrical storm right i'm i'm skipping ahead but now we're heading home and he's back in the subway station and he decides to draw a mustache on one of the <laughs> posters on on the on the subway wall um there's not a whole lot here. He's and then he ends up back at the apartment, uh, and then he has a couple again conversations with himself, if you will, uh, with his conscience. And this scene here in the bathroom, where he decides he comes up with the great idea that you know he he likes himself, so I'll just create a whole bunch of bees, a whole bunch of clones. This was reminiscent to me of the episode uh, Nervous Man in a $4 Room. I think a lot of the things that they used in that episode, they reused. Uh, I, I think I might even have a trivia point here. And uh, Again, basically, if I'm re- remembering correctly, they film both uh, you know, actions and reactions, and then they, they basically put it up on a, a silver screen, and you're reacting to another actor who is playing all of the facial expressions and emotions but you're you do a separate recording i can't remember exactly how it was done but um again a lot of those things i'd have to go back and revisit nervous man in a four dollar room because it was a little more on the technical side on how they actually they did that there's no there's no way i'm going back to revisit that one (laughs) (laughs) but anyway uh a camera trick on on how they did that. Um, there, there was. I do know that there was actually another person standing across from you who was pretending to be you in the mirror, and they were you're playing off of their emotional reactions and stuff. Um, 
So Beechcroft decides that a world of people that he likes would solve the problem, a world basically of a bunch of hymns. And so that's where the episode goes from there. Hymns and hers. (laughs) Yeah. So we come to the next day. We're uh, back to going to the office. And, uh, you know, uh, Beechcroft is standing again at the top of that stairway. And he... Uh, concentrates and he creates a world of hymns and Jimbo you had a lot of commentary you wanted to say something about the masks that they use yeah well um, so he gets on the subway and you can tell he looks and everybody is his face he goes into his office building and he always gets a paper and pays the guy and he turns around and it's him looking back at him but he's dressed like the newspaper salesman he goes to get in the elevator and this is the part that kills me because if you watch in the background, the used mask, they had masks created of his face and they are so poorly done, dude. It looks like a wax. I don't know. It's just, it's just really terrible. But he ends up stepping on a foot of a lady in there and she turns around and it's him and drag. <laughs> it's pretty funny to, yeah, see, to right. see that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he goes upstairs and I thought this was really well done. When he gets up to his office, it goes to one desk and it shows him uh, in a different mm-hmm. outfit and he's saying something. And then it fades over to another desk. It's him dressed something else. And he keeps going. And I thought that was really well done to see the clothing difference and all that. And even one of them, I think he has like a mustache and glasses. I think that was mm-hmm. really well done. So, um, But those masks are something that are really bad. And that, that takes a lot of points away. Yeah. So really, uh, th- this is where the, the episode really comes to a conclusion. Uh, Again, there are a lot of good shots of the, you know, when he's actually dressed up in different costumes. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot better as well, rather than the masks. But uh, really, after this new revelation, he he finally comes to the conclusion that a lot of me is just as bad as a lot of them. And I thought that was a really good moral of the story. Like, whenever you think that you're you know, don't think that you're better than someone else. You think the war, you know, I, people are selfish. We're all selfish, right? And uh, we think that everybody should be like us, and that's just not the case. And I thought that was really good moral. If the world was it was filled with everybody like you, it would be at, at best a boring place, and at worst, it would be a, a horrible place because, mm-hmm. you know, we all have failures, we all have shortcomings, and we need people. We're, we are. A people people i guess that's not a great way to say it but we need people in our lives we need different people where we need human interaction with different people with different personalities with uh people who uh have strengths where we have weaknesses so i thought that moral was great and on that i i did like the episode but then of course uh henry spills the coffee one last time on him at the very end of the episode and we we fade out but uh just by way of trivia, I don't, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna touch on very many trivia points, but I will touch on a couple that I think are somewhat important. So the telecast on the evening of 20, November 28, 1955, Studio One offered the man who caught the ball at Coogan's Bluff. Uh, Serling's script dramatized the story of George Abernathy, a 50 year old man who works a standard government job. He is a creature of habit. He's totally passive selfless and dull even his wife controls his finances and one day in mid-august the pattern of 
uh, the habit of George established is altered. The office is closed for renovations, so he decides to take in a ball game at the polo grounds. A pitched ball makes its way into the crowd, and by some fantastic miracle, George stretches out his arm to protect himself and catches the ball. The crowd goes wild with back slaps and congratulations, and the TV announcer interviews him. This was an act of destiny, a new purpose in his living. So George returns home and suggests to his wife that they dine out and they go dancing. His clothes go from Undertaker Gray to flamboyant checks. His speech is peppery and colloquial. He may have kicked the heck out of the habit, but his wife Alice cannot philosophically take the change. They have a scene, and George leaves the house only to realize the truth. He's been kidding himself. He's been making believe, and when he returns home, he chooses to remain quiet and uncomplaining. And then the next morning, the little man goes to work as if nothing ever happened, content with the realization that while the world speeds past him, he will remain content if he goes about the world in his own fashion. So once again, Serling took a previous story premise from 1955 from an earlier drama and fashioned an on-air fantasy in the mix. Instead of a baseball game and a fantastic catch in the stand, the main protagonist changes the world using mind over matter. But, like George Abernathy, it doesn't take long for him to realize that the old way was much better and sets out to correct the change. So you can see how those th stories are sort of woven together. The main story was woven together with the supernatural or the, you know, the Twilight Zone-ish effects that Rod put in. So, Jimbo, do you have any... I, I might have... I just got uh, basically... It's just stuff about the cost of the sets... It's not really anything really too interesting as far as trivia goes. Anything that you have, go up, go right ahead. No, I, I really couldn't find much in here. The only thing I really found was that mask, but I think it was uh, Director Buzz Kulich, uh, Kulichik said or whatever that, um, you know, this this is back in the day where you didn't have three or four weeks to, to go back and redo something and, and make sure it's done right. He's like, we right. had to go with what we had, and that's why the masks look the way they do. Yeah. Uh, one other one, because I mentioned this earlier. So Jack Greenwich, who played the role of Henry, he played that role for $600 contract. Uh, that was in March 28th of 1961. Uh, this is in regarding to the, the trivia about the mirrors. It was an interesting shot for me, recalled Greenwich. I uh, not only played the role of Henry, but I also booked, I was also booked to play the scenes with Shelley when he was talking to himself. I made it possible for Mr. Berman to react with someone. I would be off camera playing his alter ego, then they would do the reverse on him and I would play the other ego. I also remember talking to him about his prior experience of having uh, the masks made, putting some gooey substance on his face to make the mold. And Buzz Kulik was great to work with, he says, and I was uh, doing a review called The Billy Barnes People at the time and had to make uh, the 8 o'clock curtain. I made each curtain just in time uh, after each day's shoot. It was a fun job. So apparently Mr. Jack Greenwich, I guess he was shooting The Twilight Zone during the day, but then he was in a play at night, and so they accommodated him for that. I thought that was interesting how he was playing off the alter ego in the in the mirrors uh scenes other than that i don't oh i got a couple of goofs well this isn't uh okay one of the goofs is when the elevator doors open in the lobby the lobby of the insurance company uh, 
there is no edging or gap space between the floor and the elevator. Somebody's looking really closely at the episode, apparently, on this goof. So that, because there's no gap or space, it's revealing that both the elevator and the lobby are freestanding sets built on the same floor. So, just a little... I guess I guess people would be really picky about that goof. I mean, obviously, they're not going to use a real elevator. Maybe they do in some, yeah, TV shows, but... Right, they built a set, they put an elevator door, it's all on one floor. Uh, and there was one perspective goof, but I, I thought this as well, like, in the beginning, I'm like, well, how does he operate the subway? You know, I, I had to go back and rewatch it. I was like, well, I thought his powers were just limited to eliminating people, but obviously, as we've watched he can do a lot more things and just eliminate people. This, this power of the mind and this power of concentration allows him to do several different things of which we've already listed already in the uh, episode, but questions, observations, Jimbo, go ahead. And then let's, right, let's so, talk about that. So, so here we go. Uh, my thing is he gave up too easily. Um, you, you wanted, you wanted solitary, you wanted, uh, you know, silence, and the first thing you do is you go to work. Okay, so don't go to work. Go do something else. Go fly an airplane. Uh, there was one telling scene for me, too, is when he gets up, um, if you notice when he walks into work, there is a car or a taxi on the street. Um, and, but then when he goes upstairs and looks out the window, all the people are gone. But so are all the vehicles. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think, I think that's just a still footage of something, you know what I mean, where there was probably right. cars and stuff there that... Um, so I don't know what happened there. Um, I think if I was him, you know, I would have, you know, you could have went and got all the money from the banks and everything and then made the people come back. So now you're rich. So you don't have to be in that position to begin with. Um, you won't have to work. You could have buy a house. You could do anything you wanted. Um, but, but I also don't understand why he didn't bring, does he not have a fa- any family at all? Does he not have a brother or sister or nieces or nephews or mom or dad or any of that? You don't hear right. any of that. So, um, maybe he doesn't have anybody, but, uh, but if you can have powers to have, make an earthquake, if you can have powers to run subways, if you can have powers to do all this other stuff, then surely you could have the power to create somebody specifically for you that knows all your quirks and loves you anyway. Um, okay. to me, this episode, terrible. I, I, I don't want to say terrible, <laughs> but I'm, but, but I'm just saying it's once again, we see the twilight zone trying to, to pull off a comedy and, mm. They just don't hit the mark when they do comedies. Uh, the one that I did like was uh, Mr. Dingle the Strong because you knew what you were going in for that one because it was just so over the top. It was hilarious. Um, <laughs> and that was probably Burgess Meredith's performance. But but this one, I just, I can't probably, I'd probably give it a four, four out of ten. It's just, it's not very good. And the only reason I'm giving it that high is because I did like some of the cinematography tricks they did with the glasses, uh, the acting in the mirror scene, because it had one of them things where you look in the mirror and you can see there's mirrors on both sides because it goes back and forth further and further away down. So I like what they did there. And yeah. uh, and Beachcraft's performance was okay. Uh, it was a little over the top at times, but, you know, talking to himself and all that, but it was all right. So four out of ten for me there, brother. Yeah. Um I agree with with uh, not being very good overall. Again, I will just go back to the conclusion that a lot of me is just as bad as a lot of them. That's its saving grace. I think the moral of the story uh, for me is its saving grace. Uh, 
we already talked about <laughs> why is he still going to work? We brought that up earlier. Like that was one thing that stuck out to me. Like, why are you still going through all the motions of working if there's no one to work for? Right. But it also it, it it sent my mind as I was thinking about the episode. What if you were the last man or the only man on earth? It brings up all those questions again. We get a different take in this episode, I guess, from versus the very first Twilight Zone episode. Where is everybody? Because the main character in this episode is the actual cause of people's disappearance. Whereas I think his name is Mike Ferris. Uh, in the first episode, he was bewildered, right? He was wondering. It wasn't that he wanted to get rid of everybody. He just woke up one day to this world that was manufactured. Obviously, we find out that's the big, if uh, you know, spoiler alert. He, that has manufactured this world that, that he's the only one in it. So the, there is differences between this episode and that episode, but, uh, you know, the whole, did you ever read Robinson Crusoe when we were back in school? Do you remember that story about, or maybe, if you've seen the, Castaway, the, the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> okay. So like, it, my, that's where my thoughts went. Like, what if you were the, the last man on earth, all of those things, like, what would that be like? What would your... What would your world look like? So it's cool to sort of go down that road mentally. Um, but I, again, I, I don't think there was... The consequences weren't very stern for him. Like, right. okay, I just made all these people disappear and I didn't like it. So hmm, I'll just bring them all back. Like, there should have been some sort of consequence for an earth shattering decision like that. He's essentially playing God by concentrating. And then like, he's just like, oh, I don't like this either. I just realized it's, mm, you know, uh, the, the lesser of two evils is to have everybody come back. And he, like, he didn't, you know, a lot of times the twilight zone will punish people for their bad actions. I just felt like there should have been in other episodes. I just felt like there should have been maybe more stiffer consequences for doing something like that rather than just like, eh, you know, I'll just put it back the way it was just because, but you know, I'm with you. I, I might give it a five and a half or a six. I think IMDB gave it a six and a half, but just for the moral itself, it is in there. And this for the idea that it gets you thinking about last month last man on earth type scenarios for that. I'll give it a few points. So I'm going to, it comes in probably, is it a good episode? Not really probably a five and a half uh for me so there we go wrap this bad boy up there you have it so if you want to follow us on the social medias we are the tragedy cinema podcast uh if you want to email us we are you can send it to the tragedy cinema gmail.com if you want to leave us a review on apple uh, itunes uh wherever we find it we'll get the email and we'll, we'll read it on the air so with that being said, until next time where we have a banger of an episode with Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up, which is heads and shoulders above this one, and maybe a tentacle or two, um, I think this episode is coming <laughs> to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. Mr. Archibald Beechcroft, a child of the 20th century, who has found out through trial and error, and mostly error, that with all its faults, it may well be that this is the best of all possible worlds. People notwithstanding, it has much to offer. Tonight's case in point, in the Twilight Zone.